0: Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 82. Uh, Today's episode is going to deal with foreign influences on Queen Anne chairs in the Queen Anne period. So in an article in uh, Antiques Magazine from November of 1933, it was discussed about foreign influences on the design of Charles II chairs contrasting typical English specimens with others that were regarded as of French or Dutch origin. Two main conclusions were reached, that while English and continental chairs of the Restoration period have a strong family likeness, in England, alien motives were absorbed and transmuted into a distinctive native idiom that within certain limits tests may be applied which enable us to distinguish between english chairs and those which were either imported from the continent or were made in england by immigrant craftsmen craftsmen not in a guild that's what we want to say Um, so i now propose to consider from the standpoint of foreign influence chairs dating from about 1700 to 1715 and therefore roughly contemporary with Queen Anne's design. Between these years, a complete stylistic revolution was accomplished, with the last decade of the 17th century terminated a period of license in design and fashionable taste, sobered, perhaps, by the events of the revolution itself, veered from ostentation and lavish display to an appreciation of dignified simplicity. The tie with Holland was drawn much closer by the accession of William III and Dutch influence, far from declining, notably increased. Post-restoration furniture had shown astonishing powers of assimilation, its endless variations of detail being accounted for by a tendency to sacrifice function to ornament. In the new type, fitness for purpose was kept steadily in view, and within now much narrower decorative convention, eclecticism could be no longer be so lightly hearted, overindulged. So briefly, the change was from a structural, primarily a vertical, to one based on a series of complementary curves. The substitution of a or for straight supports was by far reaching consequence, for it controlled the entire design and ended by imposing a continuous rhythm. The outcome of this development is foreshadowed from the start, but the mode was still in its experimental stage when English craftsmen first approached it. So I think there can be no doubt that the solution of ensuing problems was superior to any current one abroad. Like many other new fashions, the curved form of support originated in France, and the French terms cabriole, which means goat's leap or uh, goat's leg, even if without warrant in contemporary usage, serve to recall the source of this revolutionary principle in design. Rare and obviously transitional in character are certain chairs which, in conjunction with the cabriole, retain panels of cane work in the back and florid carved cresting of stuart type times so in this cresting it often appears a revealing french detail a diaper type pattern or a vase or fruit and flowers the carving is small in scale the stretchers strongly inflected and the moldings quite complex with rounds and hollows sharply defined the line of the slender cabriole, united to the seat rail by small blocks, is taunt, although nervous. While the back legs, such chairs are chamfered or drawn out into long scrolls. And one such chair, um, which is somewhat out of sequence, uh, to round off the series at Levens Hall in England, a pair from the collection of the Earl Howe at Penhouse exhibits the same general characteristics, though the back legs are united by a turned baluster, and the scrolled termination of the cabriole is quite unusual. Clearly, this elegant, highly civilized type is not the achievement of apprentice hands painfully acquiring the elements of a new style, but chairs of this kind date after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes and some may be safely attributed to the Huguenot craftsmen, of whom vast numbers fled to England in search of religious toleration. So it is, moreover, certain that this type was soon imitated by the Dutch. It appears, for example, that in a pair of pastel conversation pieces painted by Cornelius Tost in the the Rekord Museum in Amsterdam. The next important variety was probably introduced in England from Holland late in the reign of William the third. In the latter, chairs with uprights are still almost vertical. The splat, wide and of irregular outline, is carved throughout its length. There is a recessed front stretcher composed of scrolls, and the front legs decorated with floral pendants, and these terminate in volutes. A very elaborate specimen from the well-known collection of the late Leopold Hirsch. These such chairs are imbued with the decorative spirit of Daniel Merritt's school, and their nationalities highly debatable. If they were made in England at all, immigrant craftsmen like Robert Desaunet, Robert Gilbert, or Garrett Jensen may be held responsible. But these names are cited at random for the long list of alien craftsmen employed by the Crown. And... If such exiles help to naturalize foreign models, it is obviously that English makers would not long be content to let the invaders enjoy a monopoly of the output. Hence, in the early stage of the evolution, it becomes a matter of extreme difficulty, or perhaps it is impossible to differentiate between the foreign model imported or by the alien in England itself. And the same model imitated by an English hand. The difficulties is increased where the very few specimens of a type survive for comparison, as in the case of the walnut chairs that represent the next stage of the development of the curvilinear design. These have high backs with uprights of convex sections incurved toward the base and enclosing splats. For the first time, a vase outline pierced and carved with interlaced patterns. The legs, a slender cabriole form, are united by shaped lateral rails in a recessed frontal stretcher. They are narrow at the base, decorated with husks, and lack the attached brackets that later became quite the usual, while they end in hoof-shaped feet, the so-called feet of the French. Some chairs of this kind, to be found in the Queen's Gallery at Hampton Court Palace, have been identified as the remnants of a large set th- supplied by Thomas Roberts for His Majesty's Dining Room in 1717, mainly on the ground of that term, India-backs was it termed in the bill, and may refer to the pseudo-Oriental character of the Pierce-type carving. So I feel unable to endorse this identification. The thickness of the uprights, the shoe raised above the seat rail, the attenuated cabriole, and the scrolled center stretcher all point to a very early stage of evolution. Such chairs would have been quite out of fashion under George I. The question as to their nationality must remain quite open at this point, though. They are still... Uh, Myra Greskin feeling, and there the chairs of like pattern in the Rijksmuseum Museum in Amsterdam. Yet, in the case of the Hampton Court set, and of a similar example in South Kensington, an English maker may have given the benefit of the doubt. So after the ascension of Queen Anne, the compa- comparison is with Holland alone. There is no real French counterpart to the Queen Anne style. In general, foreign influence is much less apparent here, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that the divergent development makes it much easier to distinguish between English and continental pieces. On the other hand, the grammar of style became diffused with some extent throughout Europe and spread to America. Likewise, in the Swedish National Museum at Stockholm may be seen early cabriole chairs that may pass for the work of an English country joiner, Why some contemporary American examples of the type exhibit similar angular provincial characteristics. Instead of tracing the various stages in an evolution now grown familiar, it will now be more useful to note a few salient points of difference between the Dutch and the English styles. First, there is the matter of line and proportion. In many instances, a decisive test in fine Queen Anne chairs, the feeling of proportion is strongly marked, and in later specimens, a continuous rhythm pervades the design. This innate sense of form seems to have been peculiar to England. Certainly it was denied by the Dutch. In low country chairs, we rarely or never perceive this flowing line the all-enfolding principle and spirit of the style. The curves are abrupt and broken, uncoordinated at best. They halt and start again. In characteristic examples of the common domestic type, the fussy-scrolled outline of the uprights and splat would proclaim their origin, even if the cabriole did not give them away. Dutch craftsmen were apparently incapable of shaping this curve with real elegance, and for the most part, failed significantly with the claw and ball foot, which, starting abruptly from the base of the leg, is pinched and lacking its nervous action. In the seat rail, they favored short repetitive curves with a central pediment, fret cut at the edges. The material on chairs may be regarded as a guide to nationality only in very limited degrees. R.W. Simmons' researches has proven that from early in the 18th century, Virginia walnut was freely imported into Europe, but England had no monopoly on this wood. Owing to its lack of figure, such walnut was of little use to be for veneered furniture. Hence, it was mainly employed in the solid. Even the differences between European varieties of walnut do not afford a conclusive test. We know that besides the indigenous timber, often remarkable for its decorative figure, English craftsmen made considerable use of the black walnut from the neighborhood of Bourgogne. The wood called Grenoble, situated frequently in Stuart accounts, is thought by some authorities to be another variety of walnut but distinction between the sundry kinds of the same wood is a matter for the timber expert alone and a little principle to use as the, for just the collector in comparing english and foreign chairs design construction and ornament are all important factors so i've already touched upon uh, form and proportion but further features to notice in the design of dutch chairs are the carved volute feet, sometimes substituted for ball and claw, and the heavy, rounded arm supports sharply over the top. In construction, perhaps, the chief differences is that the veneers of fine English chairs were more carefully selected than the Dutch to display the figure, were cut apparently thinner, and were laid out with greater skill. In the joinery, there was no strong contrast, but in some Dutch chairs, the internal framework will be found roughly finished very deep, as if intended to support quite the heavy weight. But apart from this form, carving and decoration provide the best test, and here the difference is scarcely less obvious to the trained eye than between the contemporary Dutch and English genre painting. Horman's opposed to Francis Hyman, but through obvious, it's very becomes very obvious, the difference is hard to define, for it depends upon familiarity with the language of styles and deductions drawn from a long process of comparison. In most, most Dutch examples, the carving is flat, lacking uh, vivaciousness and vitality, and relatively coarse. There are certain peculiarities in their repertoire of ornament, notably spiky upright foliage, which is classical acanthus transformed into what I would call cabbage, and small scrolls dispersed throughout the structure, beading and scaled ornament against a punched background. This crinkly fan-shaped motif applied on the seat rail is characteristic of a Dutch detail. So in their bearing upon provenance, much might be said about the marquetry and lacquer decoration on early cabriole chairs but not in the space at my disposal right now marquetry appears prominently on dutch chairs of this period while in england it was sparingly used there is a marked contrast in style and quality of this decorative device floral decoration is common in dutch marquetry chairs whereas the finest english examples were inlaid with arabesque in quiet tones of buff and brown sometimes with the owner's arms set in a delicate mantling on the splat the popular dutch type which has uprights splat legs and seat rail profusely decorated with coarsely cut foliage and flowers has no counterpart in england a pair of walnut side chairs lately added to the washington memorial collection in Salgrave manner, has splats, inlaid gracefully shaped panels with an arabesque pattern which admirably represents the sober English taste. These chairs afford an interesting contrast with a handsome Dutch armchair and one of a pair in which floral marquetry is associated with carving. Here the cutting of the veneers is unusually fine, while the construction is so closely resembles English practice that Only after a long deliberation had these chairs, with a settee that matches to them, been transferred to the group of initial inlaid Dutch furniture at South Kensington. So I will continue uh, these notes with a word on Japan decoration, which though rarely found in English chairs, was much favored on the continent at this time. Of Japan chairs made in Holland, The structural design generally affords the best indication of origin, while the actual process was much of the same in both countries. Significant differences of detail are observable in the imitation of the Oriental technique, notably in the facial types when figures were introduced in the decoration. But here, the question in provenance is complicated by the fact that early in the 18th century, The fashion for Japan furniture was widespread in Europe. In Spain, still exist many chairs of this genre that closely resemble the Dutch examples. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.